0: Welcome to Relevant Parties by Carhartt Work in Progress. I'm Char Ravens and in this series I'm going behind the scenes at some of the world's best independent record labels to meet the visionaries and the obsessives who've made musical history. In each episode we sit down with one of these label founders to find out what makes them tick. We hear the tall tales and big ideas behind some of the most influential records and scenes of the past 30 years and maybe try to work out just what possessed them to take on one of the most challenging jobs in the music industry. Some of the best independent record labels have captured a specific scene, or a city, or a moment in time, or a musical movement. But some of them are just one person's taste. Unbending and uncompromised by whatever is flavour of the month, and ending up as a kind of fractured musical portrait of the human behind the releases. Darren White, known to everyone as D Bridge, rose to fame as one quarter of the drum and bass outfit Bad Company, whose creative peak at the turn of the millennium coincided with DB's brush with the mainstream. But if commercial success had to come at the cost of innovation, then Deebridge decided he didn't care for it. So he went solo and set up Exit Records in 2003. UK's sound system culture was supposed to be about hurtling into the future, about pushing things forward. And even when he scored a huge hit like his modern d classic True Romance, Debridge just kept on moving. In the 18 years since Exit began, it's been through many overlapping phases, releasing heavyweight dubstep, hardcore jungle throwbacks, footwork crossovers, and dreamy down-tempo and ambient. And yeah, some pretty serious drum and bass rollers in there, too. The whole point for Deebridge is that the true creative potential of Jungle was never fully realised in the 90s. There are still so many avenues to go down. So when Bridge teamed up with Instrumental for the Autonomic podcast in 2009, their emotional subversion of drum and bass inadvertently created a new genre. And when a wave of Exit producers started fusing footwork with Jungle in the mid-10s, they kicked off a transatlantic conversation that's still shaping the cutting edge of dance music. And after years of pushing his own label signings to the front, Deebridge has recently reignited his own creativity and since the emotional odyssey of his 2018 album A Love I Can't Explain, which is one of my favourites on the label, he's put out another three albums and with that has come new bookings and new audiences, proof that dedication to the craft will always trump fleeting fashions. So this is a good time for Exit and a good time for Darren. Who's found his groove out in Antwerp, where he lives now with his wife and kids, dividing his time between the school run and the studio. So I interviewed him from his home studio, surrounded by so many synths and lots of tasty gear. And he talked about throwing himself into music after a turbulent childhood, how Bad Company became pioneers of digital technology and why he went back to his analogue machines anyway. And he explained the difficulties of orbiting the drummer bass scene, a world where doing something different isn't always welcomed. And remember, for a more thorough musical introduction, you can dig into the playlist for this episode on Spotify. Just search for relevant parties and you'll find music from across the two series so far. So I thought perhaps we could just start at the beginning of Exit, which isn't the beginning of your career, but it's a sort of middle point in, in your longer life's work, I suppose, because it's well into your career as a, as a producer and DJ. Um, but could you just take us back specifically to 2003? What was happening in 2003 for you personally and also in drum and bass in general? that led to the beginning of exit
1: 2003 so that was I suppose a kind of post BC really I was living in Golders Green I think I'd moved in with with um Jay and Mick uh, Maldini in Vegas from BC and we were sort of all living together um <laughs> which was yeah which was how was that which was, which was, which was it was all right, actually. To, I, thinking back on it, it was a it was a good time. We were always hanging out in like, pretty much hanging out in Hampstead Heath because um, Fresh lived up there. You know, Fresh's old man owned a restaurant around there, so it was kind of like oh, really? that. Yeah, it was kind of like just hanging around in the heath. So it's not not a bad place to be. Do you know what I mean? Lovely, yeah. But it was kind of like a, a time in the bad company life where things weren't going as well as they were. It, it, we'd kind of, we'd just been, you know, there was the the story that we lost a lot of money through through vinyl distribution and pretty much, you know, stolen like so something like over, over a hundred grand from us that we were owed. So there was this kind of, kind of this feeling of, um, I think fresh, maybe fresh would have a different view on it, but he, because he was involved in so much of the early BC of the BC stuff, he, Financially lost the most mm. do you know what I mean so and I think he was just a bit frustrated with with that side of things and also I know that dyna- in a dynamically we were especially me heading in different directions and I you know I think I can't remember the exact date I think like um, Shot Down on Safari was probably the last album that we'd done and that just I just wasn't in it at all you know it just wasn't my cup of tea the way the sound was going and all that so I was kind of this isn't really my thing, you know, I'm not really, and I'm not sure how much I want to be a part of it. But I had that difficult dilemma of being, I was being paid really well, but not enjoying it, Um, you know, going out. So it was this, yeah, going out to parties and just not really, you know, playing music that I wasn't really in and being, I wouldn't say forced, but I suppose in some ways, yeah, we had to represent the BC sound, so, and I wasn't really in it.
0: When you say about the money, by the way, yeah. Just to be clear, that is that because a distribution company tanked, or? yeah.
1: They basically, they, yeah, there was something, something shady happened, and basically a lot of labels lost a lot of money. So yeah, so we foolishly, because we were pre- pretty naive, we were kind of like, oh yeah, we'll get it later, kind of thing, because that was there. there were, we had two big sources of income: we had the, the records that we were selling, and we had you know, the DJ career, but we were sort of so young and enjoying flying around the world and being looked after and that whole side of things that we forgot about that side of it. <laughs> forgot what we <laughs> were owed kind of thing. Um And then it suddenly was like, oh shit, it's not there anymore. And the fact that we were kind of growing, musically growing apart, it was suddenly this, like, okay, well, thinking about what's going ahead, we could have done with that. Do you know what I mean? So that we can all sort of go off and maybe do some things. So Dan sort of, I think Dan was like, Fresh was working with um Adam F at the time, and they kind of hit it off, and that was when the kind of thing he did a breakbeat punk or something or some something, I can't remember the name of the label he did. He did Mutant X, I think was on there, and I could just see that Dan was like, right, not so much like I don't really need you guys, but yeah, I don't really need you guys. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I can <laughs> I can go off and do my own thing, and I just wanna he wanted to explore that direction more than the, than the rest of us. So here yeah, he kind of left and then me and i think me jay and mick we kind of like all right are we going to carry on with this so we did and but in the back of my mind it was always like i'm not really sure if this is what i want to do do you know what i mean i think we just done uh like bullet time was the first thing we'd done really without Dan, the bullet time ep and it did well it did well for us but there was like you know like i say living in gold green i was just going down to to the end going to the swerve And and getting getting enamoured with that sound and what was going on with there, I was feeling a lot more connection with that, and that really sort of made me think, you know what, I need to be able to express myself because I was I I just felt I was getting because I was becoming less and less involved in BC tunes, I was getting lost, you know what I mean, and I didn't, and it was frustrating for me. Also, around that time, my kind of um, my brother Steve Spacek was. he just, I think it was around the time he did the vintage high tech al- album for k7 and I was helping him out on that so I was just kind of like it was all you know it was just this whole new thing of like hanging out with him he was introducing me to like dealer and all this stuff and I was just kind of like ah oh, okay this is <laughs> this is this is what <laughs> I'm feeling and it was just like just re- sort of reminding me that just that, um, that, for the the full of love of music again just reminding me what you know what was what, what was out there and what I felt a connection with. Um, so yeah, it was just kind of a really mixed time. Really, I think we were kind of it was. I I I just remember being really frustrated a lot. Really, I think that was the main sort of feeling I had. And I remember, you know, the conversations that I had with Jay and Mick and we were like, "Look, I want to do my own thing. I want to do my own do do my own releases, solo releases. But I'd like to do them on BC recordings." And that just they just like nah. And I and I really I really couldn't get my head around like why that wouldn't be a thing. Do you know what I mean? Why that wouldn't be okay? But for whatever reason, they weren't really into the idea. Um, Because I always saw it as almost like I think I've said it before, like you know, like how um, full cycle. You know, they were they were collective, but there were individuals within that collective as well, and they were all releasing on the same label. So I wanted the same thing, and they just they were just like nah. So it, it was almost like. My hand was forced, maybe. So that's why it's called Exit, then? People have asked that. <laughs> um, and maybe subconsciously it is.
0: It's like you just saying bye. Pretty much, yeah.
1: But I kind of, you know, at the time I always had this thing in my head because I was loving going to Japan. And I always, for some reason, just that logo and seeing it in these doorways. And I always had, yeah, I'm going to take loads of pictures of this logo in different, and those are going to be the sleeve covers. And that's 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 going to be it but probably deep down it was me just being like (laughs) I'm out of here kind of thing (laughs) Um, and I do think in sometimes in hindsight whether I would have called the label exit but I'm kind of stuck with it now so
0: no it's good and it's uh it's suitably vague for the many shapes in which you have bent (laughs) the contents if you know what I mean like it doesn't necessarily say this is what we do which has probably turned out to be quite useful yeah So, yeah, I I kind of wanted to get at this point a little bit, actually. So you've you've obviously, you yourself have taken on uh, various different aliases and projects. You've done loads of collaborations. And they've kind of been like these mini eras within Exit, I guess. You've had like the sort of Mosaic compilation and Autonomic and then Pleasure District and these different kind of things that have obviously piqued your interest at different points. And I guess I just wanted to like highlight the kind of context for that. And, and think about why you feel like you've needed to create all these different like signposts and labels. Cause I think it feels to me as if you're trying to be like in communication with the audience, with like the record buyer to be very like clear about what they can expect, which perhaps to me says something about like drum and bass audiences. Needing to know <laughs> what to expect, <laughs> like you've 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 really clarified. Like this is this project, this is that sound, um in a way that I think a lot of other record labels maybe just wouldn't bother doing. They would just put stuff out.
1: I don't know if 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 I've ever, ever that purposeful with it. I, I think it's my main thing is signing music and being into music that that I connect with and that I'm interested in. And that's you know, and it's. I think what it is, maybe I just—I want to say—bored, get bored easily, but I just want to find something that piques my interest. So I think the idea—I think it's good to sort of frame things, definitely, which is why, especially with like Autonomic, it was like, you know, here's a sound that we wanted to 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 present to people. You know, us and um, me and uh, instrumental. Um, so let's do this podcast and let's just do like just twelve, so we don't, you know overkill it
0: it's like you're making music but feeling very aware of the fact that there is someone listening to it and that you might need to actually you know give give a context of what you're doing not everybody does that you know I I wondered if you think very much about like who the sort of exit hardcore fan is
1: no and I think that's probably I think in some ways that's my biggest problem that I don't think because it's like I do it's just it it, most of the things I do, I do do for me and, and for the artists that are involved. Mm. Um, I want them to kind of release the you know, release what they believe in. It's like, it's why I don't get involved in, to, in an artist's album or in terms of direction or A&Ring as such. It's like, because this is you and I want you to represent you. And I, I don't like the, because I'm a producer as well. I don't like the idea of someone telling me how to do what I'm doing. So those i think i just really th- the struggle i've had i think is that i uh, for me exit isn't a D&B label but it's always been perceived that way and that if if anything that's the ongoing battle i've had with the audience out there that <laughs> listen guys it's not you know i have to keep reminding people that black pockets these basic was the first album that released you know it's basically a hip hop album um you know, and if you look, then look at the rest. You know, things they live, Dan Harbin. Them. Um, I didn't really want to conform to what DMB was, but it, I, th- I, you know, underlying, obviously, it is it has that base. But I think we've tried to, if anything, we've tried to show what DMB can do and is and is possible. So yeah, it's just this was real struggle that I have. It's an internal struggle of like, no, we're not a DMB label, but I love DMB, but you know so it's this weird ongoing thing like even like you know i've just released a pretty much a d b album and it's done well it's done well for the label and it's like it's slightly frustrating that, that, it, that it has done well but it's like, <laughs> i'm if uh it's like yeah cool of course it is because we we can do that what i do like i know is that i like projects i like working on projects and then seeing them through and then not really worrying too much about the end result, but just kind of like, Hey, let's, why don't we do this? You know, for example, like the Richie brains project, it was a kind of like, I knew that we had, we, I was working with artists that there was that had this similar thread between them, fixate, fracture, omunit, stray. There was this similarity and I was just like, well, it'd be really good if you all sort of formed and did some music together um and that project took from when it was initially started to when it actually finished it was like three maybe four years it took to finish um but i was like you know we were okay with it was like there's no need to rush it kind of thing it was like when you got time and then you know we spoke about what um what this project was and it just sort of everything sort of happened naturally and the same with binary collective which was me kid drama consequence joe seven yeah that's it (laughs) Just double checking. Um, and we were um, again. We just kind of like uh, go in with an idea, and then see where that idea takes us. And that you know that idea was that okay? We're we're writing a soundtrack for a movie that doesn't exist, and it worked. So, and then we we were able to frame that in in that kind of you know in that context. So I think there's it. We I, we don't go in with that intention. I think, but it. I suppose it does sort of sort of form that way. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: That looking back into the sort of earlier days of or the first half of Exit, one of the biggest hits of those times is a track called Marker with Dub Physics and Skeptical and vocals from Strategy. Can you tell me a bit about the story of that one? Because I think it's I mean, it's certainly not like a straight up drum and bass track, is it? So what was it doing at the time? Like, why do you think that particular track kind of had the impetus behind it?
1: I was just talking to to Skep, Skeppy the other day about this actually because we had a chat and it was again it was just one of these natural kind of things because de- de- um, Ash started it and I think he, he think he started it in around maybe April of the year it came out and then sent it to George because they were doing stuff together and I think it, George just sat on it for ages and then literally him and Strats were in a session one day got it up and it just clicked Do you know what I mean it wasn't it was done really quickly and I had it for I felt, it felt like I had it for ages they They said it was done the same year it came out, but I don't think so. I feel like I had it for a good year or so, and it was just something that I had that I was playing out and it was causing it was causing trouble you know people were <laughs> people were like what is what is this?" and it was good because you know you know we the festival Sun and Bass in Sardinia it was like a you know the soundtrack of that one year and then used to um what was that club used to play cable down in L- London Bridge. Were, I can't remember whose night I was, I think it, it might have even been our nights, a bunch of cuts. Maybe we were doing that there. Yeah, it was just going off this, this track.
0: Was this before you decided to release it even? You were just a track that you had?
1: Yeah, it wasn't. Hmm. I, per, per, I think I was personally, I was more in the B-side at the time, rags. I, think, <laughs> I, thought, the, I thought the B-side was so much better. <laughs> um, and I still do. <laughs> um, and because and it, equally that track was, that was also a big tune as well. Um, but yeah, we kind of like, I remember when we were putting it out, cause it was like, Oh, we need to get this out before the end of the year. And I think it was, and then the, 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 the release date was coming in. Oh, it's going to be in December. And it was like, well, December's a tricky time to release music um, <laughs> You know it's like coming up to Christmas or it's, People aren't necessarily buying music But then it was just like Do you know what Sod it We should And I also, it was like It was one of those tracks as well Which for some reason It took on a life of, of its own In terms of like Everyone getting behind it Like from the audience mm-hmm. And all DJs producers and everyone just sh- like really sharing it when it came out on on you know when the video and that came out and the tune, when the tune was actually released we were just kind of like whoa what is going on that's like everyone is sharing this tune everyone's playing it you know we'll get playlisted and all this kind of stuff and we're like okay uh <laughs> this is this is doing all right this tune and yeah it was i love that it. it just came out at the you know especially at the end of the year and came out after the Drum and Bass Arena Awards for that year, and it was clearly the biggest tune of the year. <laughs> it was like, I just, it was, yeah, I'm, it's one of those tunes as well. It's just, is still selling to this day. Oh, but, really? Yeah, and my label manager huh. keeps telling you, it's just the gift that keeps on giving. It's just, <laughs> Kind of like I'm always kind of like when their statements coming out, I got to do their voices. I'm like, really? How much? It's like, <laughs> it's like, so yeah, it's still selling. It's still selling. Like, okay, cool. So yeah, it was a, a a big point, I suppose, in some ways, in terms of you. Know, obviously, we hadn't hadn't had anything as big as that, and probably haven't had since, really, I suppose. But it was kind of like that was the label's sort of hear it you know stamping kind of like yeah we're this is a label to be to for people to take note of and probably as well added the the belief that it was a dmb label so
0: i mean with the success of a track like that did you then think okay we should probably go in this direction and in that case perhaps return to being a, a more, I mean, not necessarily accessible label, but certainly have bigger kind of commercial
1: targets. I, no, I don't think I ever think that way. I think what's, I think I'm lucky in the sense, I'm a sense, because I'm DJing, I was getting sent so, all this stuff. So I was able to kind of pick up on things quite early and things that I potentially wanted or wanted to sign. Mm. But I'm always quite drawn to, I'm not really into sort of obvious things. So when like, you know, we have a track like Mark and then suddenly like people sending you these, <laughs> you know, a hundred versions of it. It's like, I I don't yeah. need, I don't need this. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's kind of being done. So it's, no, I think like that's like being, being sent all this music, I was able to kind of like, all right, that's cool, you know, and get, find stuff that. Which 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 was getting a response, I suppose, on the dance floor. And so, it, I suppose, in that way, yeah, you kind of maybe not, not so much commercially thinking, but you're looking at what works mm-hmm. and, and what, what what where the response is at. So that can maybe be okay. This guy, what this guy's doing is, you know, is 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 interesting and is people are, are liking it. But I, I don't think we ever kind of like like I say I don't I don't tell my artists to kind of like you need to do this again. Enough because I, I, I don't think that's healthy and i don't think any of them want to do it because i've never really wanted to do it as w- within myself sort of.
0: right yeah because you've almost had the, the same type of experience where with with true romance which is one of your like huge tunes i guess you had a choice to make more of those you could have gone and yeah recycled yeah. that success to some extent
1: yeah i could have i think you know I, i've done a couple of vips and always kind of regretted it but <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> yeah. I knew, it's, it's, it's soon as but the thing is the vip for me oh it just fixed fixed some problems that the original had so that's why i kind of did it um <laughs> and then the next vip i did is because i was going back to back with goldie and i just needed something to to hurt him but um <laughs> other than that it's like i've never touched i don't think i've ever used that bass sound again and i know i could quite easily just have rolled out another 10 or 15 mm, of them, mm. especially within dmb because dmb does kind of have this thing of repeating itself somewhat if someone something catches on you tend to hear you know a fair few versions of that thing yeah but I don't want sort of I that doesn't sort of turn me on as such um so it's mm. like when I when I look for um, when I'm finding artists or work, when I'm working for it it's like is I like what they're into and their sound and I don't need to then find another artist that sounds like that artist because it's just not it's not helpful for them as well. Do you know what I mean? If you've got, say, like two or three different artists all doing similar <laughs> things, it's it's not... Um, it's, I don't think it's healthy, so...
0: It's also one of those tracks, though, that uh, if you look around on forums for, like, making tunes, people are still asking those questions. You know, I want to get the base on True Romance. Does anyone know how to do this kind of thing? It's got that kind of life to it.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I might... Um, i don't know i might nft it or something that seems quite popular now right? N- <laughs> <laughs> nft the yeah, preset definitely. but specifically
0: just the baseline yeah mm. not the track mm. just the baseline <laughs> yeah
1: i think i might do that that would be
0: good um all right let's let's do let's do the full rewind and okay. get a little bit of uh of your own background in there because i think you have quite a an interesting background you come from a a musical family as they say so there's your brother Steve, who's a renowned musician in his own right, as Steve Spacek, um, and your dad was a reggae singer, right?
1: Yeah, <laughs> it wasn't necessarily accomplished, but he is definitely a reggae singer and has had <laughs> had releases. Well, I, so I didn't grow up with my brother. It's kind of like I'm basically I'm the love child of my dad. <laughs> um, so there's my my dad had my my brother and then sister, and then I came along, and then. The rest of the sort of family came along. Um, So I grew up with my mum. I lived with her for 11 years. That wasn't the... That was a sort of up and down sort of life. Basically, I was fostered. I was in children's homes. So it's kind of like... And I left home when I was 11. My memories of her are there, but I wouldn't say necessarily they're great memories. Do you know what I mean? You know, I do always remember she had like the, the old sort of stereo system and it was, you know, she was into like John Holt and Dennis Brown and Sugar Hill Gang Um, and those were kind of all the records I remember from her, but I didn't really have a connection with music until I kind of moved out, um, and went to live with my auntie and uncle in, um, in Malvern in, yeah. When, when I was around 11 and when I studied in secondary school, that was when I started to find, get into music, um, really. And that was you, that was through the obvious channels at the time, which was Pepsi chart show. Smash Hits. I remember my, my my little cousin used to get Smash Hits magazine. They used to have a read of that with the flexi discs on the front occasionally. <laughs> um I think I would, I wasn't didn't really form my own tastes until like like the Doors and the Jimi Hendrix. I think I went through that phase. Oh right. Actually to be fair, I do like my auntie and uncle were really they were like um rock and rollers and they used to like used to constantly like the um the Everly Brothers and all that, all that sixty stuff, Eddie Cochran. So I grew up on a lot of that as well. So maybe there is that kind of because it was it's so exposed to so much different stuff. It's kind of where why I'm I'm not so focused on one thing, I suppose. So I I think yeah, sort of Hendrix and the Doors. I was really into the Doors. I loved Jim Morrison. To they to the almost obsessed. Uh, where I where we was in Malvern, it wasn't really a great deal going on. So we'd, we all used to just kind of go... Go down. It was the Nag's Head or the Morgan, and it was like the jukeboxes there. And in, when the Morgan was more sort of pop, and they had like Duran Duran, that kind of stuff on there. Depeche Mode, and that I think when well, my love for that grew from that jukebox. The Nag's Head was more of a a bikers bikers pub, and that was all about sort of Iron Maiden, Megadeth, uh, ACDC.
0: Did you have a metal
1: phase then? Yeah, I kind of I loved. Well, my next door neighbor as well. He was he, he used to he got me into like Napalm Death and things like that. Um, so then I think really where I was like, okay, this is me. What what do I connect with from my generation? Was as when the whole Manchester thing sort of really like Stone Roses, Wonder Stuff, Charlatans, all that kind of stuff was coming through. That was I was like, okay, this this is they're talking to me now. You know, I, I, <laughs> that that was the connection I, I was I was getting with those guys. Public image, Pogues, uh, you know, Chapter House, the sort of guitar janglers, head down. You know, Shoe love that stuff. Uh, My, My bloody Valentine. I think well, having all of that around me you know, you know prints and everything just you know I'm re- I think I'm really open to, to to so much stuff as a result.
0: At what point did you start getting kind of influenced by what your brother was listening to?
1: Well I was in I left my auntie and uncle in the uh, early 90s I think it would have been ninety, nineteen ninety one, 1991 and I had to move back to London and so that was I was then living with another auntie then um, and I was just basically I was just being I was a teenager doing teenager things that they weren't quite ready to deal with. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> So You were getting in trouble. Yeah, well, yeah, I wasn't, not anything serious. I was smoking weed kind of thing, things like that. Do you know what I mean? I, they, they just didn't want it around their kids kind of thing, which is fair enough. So then I kind of I lived with my other auntie for an, in Croydon in Addiscombe. I went to, what, what's that? Sellers College for a while. I was doing studying real-time computer systems. Wow. Yeah, I learned like I was learning like COBOL, Pascal, all these different languages. And uh, my dream at that time was to go. I went. I went for the interview at whatever the um, Bristol University. I originally no, it was the Polytechnic that they had then. And I was on. I was on route to do it. I was. The grades were doing all right. grades were good. And then I kind of linked up with my brother, and he started taking me out. And oh. I was like, actually, actually <laughs> wow. Actually, do you know what? This music thing's all right. Um, yeah, he started taking me out. We used to like roast, Laserdrome, um, in in Peckham, um, over in Lee Valley, Desert Storm. I had to move out of my auntie and uncle's, and he said, "You know, come come and live with me." So I lived there. Basically, lived there on a mattress in the flat with him. his my brother and a guy called Frank. Because I was only a two bedroom, so I used to kind of like swap rooms as the which <laughs> you know, move my mattress, depending on who, <laughs> uh, who had a girl over kind of thing. <laughs> um, so, Um But Steve, that was around the time of uh Curvetia, the album he was doing with Ireland. So yeah, he'd had a, a publishing advance and basically bought all this equipment. I was just kind of like, this guy's a, a G, basically. <laughs> you know, he's like making this amazing music on the um and he's you know he's buy- he's like all right i'm buying all this stuff um come let's you know let's let's show me how to use it let's let's do some stuff you know what i mean let's work it out and that was kind of that was it for me the whole computer thing i was like nah
0: but presumably you had that kind of Technical aptitude for the machines in some way.
1: Yeah, I think that that definitely helped because I was I knew how, I knew my way around around all these kind of stuff around OSs and what what was going on. Um, mm. And I was a quick learner with that kind of stuff as well, so it wasn't you know the whole thing wasn't foreign to me. So yeah, learning how to use the Akai sampler and learning how to use Cubase and the Atari was like, yeah, this, this I can this isn't a problem for me. Mm.
0: No. So. I mean, we uh, we have to sort of steam through this mm. section a little bit to get to exit, but so you you and Steve put out a record as the sewer monsters.
1: Yeah, it says that. It says the sewer monsters, but it's actually the sewage monsters, but for some reason, I don't know why it says sewer.
0: Yeah, right. It's got like a mistake on it, hasn't it? <laughs> yeah. It's got like, it's listed in discogs. So the sewage monsters.
1: Yeah, the sewage monsters, which was me, Steve and Frank. Just had the w- one release, I think we did. Yeah, the one release. Um... And then we were, and then, and there was a guy, actually a guy called Gary, GMC Blood for real. He, he was in the, involved as well. And then me and him started doing a thing called Dub Hustlers and he knew Lenny, Lenny the Ice. And that was my connection with that. And then I used to go down there, go down to Lenny's studio, Arms House Crew and all those guys. And um, it's like PSG and Timmy Magic um, hanging out around there. And yeah, kind of like that sort of, led me to f- discovering the world of Music House because they used to go down there and they, you know, they knew Leon and Paul and a guy junior who run, run the label um, that I, I think it was like Do or Die. And I think he was helping out of Arm's House as well. He They were all interconnected. So I was kind of like, I was the sort of the quiet kid in the background, just sort of tagging along and soaking it, soaking it all up. And then a mutual friend of uh, mine and Jason's Introduced me to Jason, because Jason was already working down at Trouble on Vinyl, Maldini. And that was my sort of, that. that's how we linked up. And that would have been 94, I think 94, 95. So then me and Jason started working together. And then that was Future Forces. From Future Forces, we started Hardware. And it just sort of, yeah. And then Fresh came down to the studio one day. And that's how we met him. And then, you know, moved on to bc so yeah that's the, the quick version of it
0: <laughs> yeah i mean yeah we we may as well we're gonna have to condense it a bit um but with with bc with bad companies, it does strike me like you do enjoy a collaboration but making drum and bass with four people does seem like it would be quite complicated just a lot of people <laughs> How did you even divide up all the like duties? Did, was it just like you, one person would be sitting in the corner doing a bass line?
1: The early days, and you know, the first album, it was all four of us. We basically were hanging out in Dan's mum's house for a summer and pretty much wrote that um, inside the machine. And then after that, because obviously we all lived different places, the studio that we were using was in Dan's house in Hampstead, so we'd have to travel up there. But obviously whilst we're not there, Dan's still writing music. So, and then sometimes I can't make it or Jay will go up. So it was kind of like, we kind of decided quite after inside the machine. And once the had started rolling in terms of like, Oh, people are into what we were doing. It's like, well, we, it doesn't really matter who's involved kind of thing. Um, as long as there's music being written, it can all go out under the name bag, bad company. Um, and then with the credits, we'd we'll do with that later kind of thing. But I just think it maybe kind of got in the way in some respects, whereby because you know there'd be times when because especially because of the advent of, of of the internet and AIM, you know AOL kind of thing, we, people were able to get hold of things a lot quicker. So there was like you could be literally you could go be you could go to the studio, write a tune with you know Dan would stay up longer and by the time you're up Andy C already had it do you know what I mean and it was like whoa well, <laughs> and it was always like and you oh, haven't really had keys. the sign off then <laughs> yeah so it was just kind of like also a lot of times you wake up and it'd be a completely different tune some of the same samples yeah and Andy C would have it and so it was like okay it's just getting out of control <laughs> a little bit so it did yeah working with it doesn't always work <laughs>
0: Yeah, the, the the amount of records that you put out in the space of a few years though is pretty incredible. I mean, th- there there I can see the advantage of having four people available.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was it was we were re- very prolific, and it, was, yeah. it, it helped. <laughs> you know, not all of it was good, but it was it all helped a a, a common cause kind of thing.
0: Yeah. I was reading this old conversation between uh, Simon Reynolds and Mark Fisher. It's from. 2010 and they're talking a lot about the kind of change in dance music from the 90s into the noughties. Simon Reynolds has this, um he says at one point, in the 90s the whole culture was tilted forwards and I was thinking about that and like the, the kind of prolific nature of Bad Company and was wondering did you feel that way in the 90s especially that you were kind of rushing towards the future in some way musically?
1: yeah. I think so. We always wanted to be, I know as a group, we always wanted to be on the cutting edge of whether that was, you know, we were kind of, we started off with very sort of analog, but we were, we very much embraced the whole digital in the box aspect. Mm. We, what we'd go down to, who was it, Turnkeys? I think it was on Oxford Street. Um, we'd spent so much in that shop. Um, just like, what's the latest bit of kit? you know what's <laughs> we need and i think there was like was it the roland vp free something some weird very phrase sampler it's like yeah we've got to have that um i think we may, might have used it on one track um <laughs> i know i think it was i think it's us and the chemical brothers i think that were the only people who would bought it <laughs> so I think it was a like really so quite quite this abstract bit of kit um but yeah we were very much about like pushing forward even like with when we we started um, Digital Nation, which was, which intended to be the live version of, of, of BC. It was kind of like, you know, we wanted to embrace all that technology had to offer and to use it to our advantage. I think the advent of AIM really changed things because that instantaneous nature of being able to get things to people quickly and C- CDJs, when that's the advent of that sort of, you know, t- started taking off as well. Because in, in D&B, we were one of the first people to start using CDJs. We, the fact we used to take them with us, we were just making things and we wanted to like, right, we want to test this out tonight. want to play this out. I, like going down to Music House, waiting to cut a dub. And then it was just like, no, we don't need to do that. Burn a CD and then... Take it with us. And we used to get cast out so hard.
0: <laughs> People
1: used to give us so much So much shit. Why are you It bloody, bloody wild wow. And it was, like, and it was in our head, it was like, you'll see. <laughs> you know, and we were, I think, you know, we were right. <laughs> um, you know, we took it on tour to like New Zealand and all kinds of places and just got so much flack all over the world. But yeah, I think, you know, CDJ's aim, the instantaneous nature of things really kind of. Pushed things forward in terms of of how things were done, and in negatively as well because a kind of that 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 filter of 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 time of being able to sit with something wasn't really there anymore. Kind of thing. It was like, oh right, yeah, cool, this works. Sit sick. Let's get it out, or let's do do that again. Kind of thing. So it was like, in some respects, quality control might have gone down as a result because you weren't. You were kind of. You'd give anything a go, but maybe. Maybe that was to, you know, maybe there is an advantage that I I don't see. I don't know.
0: To go back to this quite interesting little interview that I was reading recently between, between Simon Reynolds and Mark Fisher. So then after Simon Reynolds talks about this idea of like being tilted towards the future, uh-huh. Mark Fisher says, uh, the problem is that the word futuristic no longer has a connection with any future that anyone expects to happen. In the 70s, futuristic meant synthesizers. In the 80s, it meant sequences and cut and paste montage. In the 90s, it meant the abstract digital sounds open up by the sampler and its functions, such as time stretching. Through sound, we got a taste of a world that would be completely different. Now futuristic is a style like a font. (laughs) (laughs) I just felt that Mm. there was something about that, that, that reflects a little sense from the 2000s onward that, not not specifically drum and bass, but sort of dance music in general had somehow lost its steam? Like, tell me about that, because obviously that's when Exit appears. And I I don't know if that's something that
1: you felt at the time or... Yeah, no, it's an interesting way of, 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 of viewing it, I suppose. Yeah, he's, he's right, and I think as then as a result, that kind of looking backwards is what then becomes the futuristic approach. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of like, okay, what's what maybe have we missed from our past that we could maybe explore more and almost maybe see, explore a different future. Do you know what I mean? Like take, take a, an, an alternative timeline, mm. as such. Um, and I think especially that with with Autonomic, because that had very much you know connections with. Uh, the 80s and right. hardware and, and synthesizers it was kind of like okay where can we it was almost like i, I remember we were like what would happen if dnb went in this mm-hmm. direction and we explored that and i think especially i say because i was going down going down to swerve and and hearing those kind of things hearing you know in what marcus in, and was doing with solar and it was these different sort of directions that were being taken and that's what i that's what i liked about D and think, especially because it does go off in so many different He so it has all these different subgenres and whatnot. And it's like, but there's there's some real sort of people really exploring some different avenues, and that was where it was where, where people were doing that. And it was I wanted to do that with with exit. I think I wanted to explore the you know, what I felt should be going on. So I suppose in that sense, you know, that that this is the future I want for, for D and B. And and people, they were, like I say Solar and Calibre, you know, Signature and, you know, we're, we're also exploring that as well. I have a hard time with d and um, because it, it does, it goes in directions and I'm kind of like, no, that's, that's no, you're going, <laughs> no, not that way, this way. Um, <laughs> so there's, you know, I try to explore those, those those other parts and find artists who, who have that kind of similar sensibility.
0: You were saying that you know, Bad Company were really ahead of the game when it came to going digital, making music in the box, using CDJs. But then you basically stepped away from that and went back to all your hardware stuff, right?
1: Yeah, because it was...
0: um, Almost as if you're like reviving those old tools to build that different future or something.
1: Yeah, because it was, everything was becoming, I don't know, it was just, it's like what what I connect with and I wasn't really connecting with it. And it was, I could see as well, there was this kind of, technology was taking over in terms of pendulum whether you know were the biggest thing at the time and what how the, their sound was what people were chasing you know and how to sound like them and it, people trying to work out what well, what plug-in are they using what compare what it's just kind of like, what oh their snares are snares are at 200 hertz I'm like oh my god i really don't care about that <laughs> and like that, i don't that was when it's almost like the, the futurism of it or the technology was getting in the way of, of what was going on and that just didn't sit with me um which is why you know when i hooked up with instra and then went down to the studio and then just saw all this equipment I'm just kind of like ah okay seeing a mixing desk it can, it reminded me of my past and the real hands-on nature i missed that because i was in this dmb group with everyone sort of looking over at someone's shoulder kind of like no no do that or do it's just kind of like this isn't I just you know, find myself sat at the back smoking a spliff, just kind of like nodding yeah. my head. It's like, this, is, this isn't making music. Is you? you know, this isn't what I want for me. So yeah, seeing like a rack of simps there and and that's probably why my studio is like it's because I like that, you know, that I can have people come around and they can play on that stuff. He, I can play on this stuff. He can do this. And there's that real interaction. And especially just with, you know, with their approach in their ear, I just, it's like, yeah, they've got, they've got a real ear for it. And it's like, they're not afraid of, they're not afraid of key changes and chords and, do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> and, and some, a bit more, you know, some emotiveness mm-hmm. in what, in what's going on.
0: You know, a lot of labels and, and some of the labels that I've talked to in the, in the series, they might represent like a scene, um, a moment in time, you know, or like a particular genre, or they can just be one person's taste. And I think, I think that's what exit is really, but it's a funny kind of label to run because it means that you have to be very confident in your own taste at all times, even when that's going kind of against the grain of what other people think that they're doing. And I, I do notice that in, um, in the many interviews with you that I've read, you do tend to be somewhat self deprecating (laughs) about your, about your achievements and, and so on. And I just wonder, like, that idea of having to have total confidence in what you're releasing—like, do you always have that confidence?
1: Yeah, I do. Because um, my one thing is almost like I don't really want—I don't want to look back over my catalog and be like, "Oh, I wish I hadn't done that." I have to have that confidence in what I'm what I'm releasing, or you know, the producers I'm into. So it's my taste, and I appreciate that not everyone is into it or or gets it. And I'm okay with that. You know, it's like I've got, you know, there's, there's plenty of releases on this label that, you know, you have to talk into from a financial sense. have done terrible, but <laughs> I, it doesn't, doesn't, I don't care. Mm. I really don't care. Cause it's kind of like, I'm really into, into what that guy's or that person's produced, you know? And it's, if I'm into a certain person's sound, then I want you to, do you and I want to be able to give you a platform to do that I'm always looking for something just something different something I kind of I get bored really quickly I think that's that's my problem and and then and again because I say because of DMB just gets really sort of is it self-referential just really sort of just copies itself it's sort of it's like come on guys but I know as a label as well you know in, in myself I've I've wanted big things for for the label, you know. I've always, when I started out, my influences as a label were sort of XL, Talking Loud, FFRR, you know, Warp. Those are the labels that I look up to. Those are the, that that in my head it's like, I'd love to be one of those kind of labels one day, a strong independent. I think sticking to just one thing didn't was, was never really something I felt would 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 push me along that path, you know um to be to be that kind of label i need i wanted to be more open and i wanted it to be representative of of who i am and what i'm into my label sort of changes direction constantly and it's in again even like the next few releases it's going to again It's like and i'm probably going to piss off a lot of my audience again but it's like i'm sorry (laughs) you you should you should be used to it by now in some respects (laughs) you know
0: Yeah, I mean, it kind of related to that, but I I wanted to talk a bit more about Autonomic because layer one of Autonomic, so, which is, so Autonomic is a podcast in theory, although I guess people, it's funny, isn't it? You wouldn't, people don't use that word for, for that type of thing anymore. It's a mixed series, I guess, but at the time you could call it a podcast. And layer one of this 12, 12 part series begins actually with um, a couple of tracks from Jimmy Edgar. That in itself feels like quite a sort of pointed, way to open a set because he's like this you know funky kind of like sl- slightly like sleazy electro very like melodic catchy type of music and then it goes into the sort of broader concept of autonomic but I mean yeah well I almost feel like you're trying to make a specific connection there which maybe travels through some of your more recent music as well where it's like stuff like you know Detroit music funky music like was that was that something you were trying to bring people back towards in some way
1: what we did what we knew we wanted to do was kind of like let's let people know what our influences are and i think the, inf- the in some places the influences were, were equally as important as, as everything else because especially it sounds like in B as well everyone was just really guarded about you know where they were get what they're into it seems and really what, yeah just kind of like or what they were sampling. They didn't want other people to know where they were getting their sounds from or what was influencing them, what they were doing. And it was just kind of like, well, no, it, you know, sod that. Like, this is, people need to understand and connect the dots in some ways, Connect the, you know, that we felt that there was this lineage of, of, of what these influences were and the music that we're producing now. was, yeah, that was really important. That's like, you know, if you look at my my selection as well, my influences, it goes, you know, the Carpenter stuff, John Carpenter or Stone Roses, The Cure, all that kind of stuff is like, it has had an influence on me and still does to this day. So, you know, with Damon and and Al, the whole, you know, Detroit thing was, you know, that sound sort of, in Damon, especially like the Orteca and square pusher and stuff like that and Damon I mean I was very really, really into the sort of like that's so like the Jimmy Edgar Edgar stuff and sort of sleazy electro and it was like if you listen to their tunes and our tunes you can hear all of that so we just wanted to be really honest about what we're into and why we make what we make so to for just to kind of open ourselves up to that and open people up to that and open people up to 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 other kinds of music as well cuz another sort of I keep sh- I'm shitting on DMB, here, but it's like, it's very. If you're into DMB, you're only into DMB. Do you know what I mean? And that was the, the attitude. And it was kind of like, come on, look, there's more to it than that. And I think as well, it definitely came along at a time when, you know, Dubstep had started. And, and it was this sort of. You could see the splinter as well from artists like, um, you know, people who were sending us stuff like Pearson Sound, Scuba, you know, Scream, James Blake, and, you know, all these people sending, you could see that they were finding their feet and finding connect and moving off as well you know they'd started in B or moving off into to, into what they were feeling as well so it was like I suppose it's quite freeing for some people like even just today like talking to to Ollie scream he's just kind of like yeah that that moment in time is just Just amazing! I just love it. It's one of the best moments in in time for me musically. I love that that we, you know, we were able to. It's had that effect on people.
0: Could you just actually recap the sort of autonomic concept? And I I guess I'm interested in how the idea for autonomic fed into Exit because I mean, in many ways, it was was quite a short period of time. I guess it was only really a a few, a few years. But then you had this compilation, and tell me about kind of integrating that into what you were doing on Exit. Well, tell me about the sound first.
1: I don't know what what the sound is. We still we're still trying to work it. I think it's funny. Some people sort of feel like they know what autonomic is. This and it's kind of like reverse engineering. Kind of like oh, it's it's you know it's fifths and it's these kind of Yamaha DX7, cork <laughs> stuff. And it's like no, it's it's it, that's not what it is. It's I think emotion. Having something with emotion, a bit a bit something with some with some feeling and some honesty in it. That was what we you know we were trying to convey. You know, Damon and Al might have different thoughts on it, but, you know, this whole thing of it becoming a genre as such, it's like, that was never the intention. So it doesn't, it's not, it doesn't really feel like that to me. It was just kind of like a moment, like I say, a moment in time, but it was, it was just, it was just, I don't know, things we were exploring. It was sound that we were exploring and we didn't really know what it was, you know. You know, we wanted to write as well. We wanted to kind of like write pop tunes and things like that. And we've, we, you can kind of see the connection in terms of some of, there's some similarities as well from what we, what the Autonomic was doing, and some sort of some of the some pop that you can hear now. Um, it's not that it's not that dissimilar, you know. Yeah. But in terms of exit, that was another struggle I had in a sense because I was almost like because you know we the they, instrumental had their own things going on. You know they were wanting to do less sort of one seventy, and they were going more, especially if you know the Resolution six five three album is different sort of geared you know the one thirty whatever. I don't know what that genre is, but that style of um, music. So in some in some senses, I did feel a bit of a responsibility to kind of, there were all these artists producing this really cool stuff in the 85-170 vein that didn't really have anyone to represent. them. I suppose yeah. in some ways Mosaic filled that void, I think, that, that was there. Because um, mm-hmm. we'd started the autonomic label and we only had like five releases on it, I think. But yeah, da- Damon and Al were just kind of like, no, would you know what? Al especially he was like, Nah, I'm done with it. I don't want to have anything. So he was like, he he just went off in his own direction. Damon moved to Australia, and then I was kind of left with this. <laughs> <laughs> and you were yeah. left with all these tracks. I was left with all this great music and all these really cool <laughs> producers, and it was like, in some, it was like, I've got this so much cool stuff here. How am I going to get this out? Or had the people because I want people to hear this, and the compilation just seemed like. The easiest way, I suppose, to kind of rather than doing sort of in you know staggering these releases over x amount of years, I was able to kind of condense it a bit. The the people who were sort of sending me stuff were also de- you know just developing in their own way as well and exploring new things. So it was it was all it, it did definitely led on to kind of the directions that you know we I exit was going is mm, going
0: mm. yeah. And then s- after that for you. Uh, so then you had the heart drive project and also yeah. the Velvet alias, which is like your house alias. Yeah. So it feels as if both of those things, you know, autonomic was perhaps a springboard for both of them in different ways. Because to suddenly decide, OK, fuck it, I'm going to do some house records is obviously quite quite a switch up. Although you didn't end up putting all of those out on exit, did you, the Velvet? like They, they went elsewhere.
1: Yeah, um, I think I did one. On Exit. It was it was like a, this itch that needed to be scratched, I suppose. From a personal point of view, I was quite lost, I think. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Because I knew I, re- I was really into what we were doing as Autonomic. I had visions in my head of what it could be. So yeah, I kind of... I think I sort of buried myself in other people's music and putting other people's music out. My DJing was getting, you know, was obviously really picking up as well. And I was getting... Just getting sent so much cool music and being you know being playing all this stuff and like right yeah i want to sign that's amazing i want to sign that i want to sign that and then what i was doing was just kind of getting pushed further and further back and then it was the the whole thing of the stuff that i'm playing and stuff that i'm putting out just sonically just sounds i was getting into that whole thing of what what the problem that would sort of the early BC kind of thing or that sonically it was just sounding so much better than anything I could do. So I was just kind of get, losing confidence in what, in my own music as a result. So I think there was a a big big gap where I didn't release anything for, for a while. But I just, I obviously still making music, but making music for me just got, you know, that sort of selfish, sort of therapeutic, get me through the week kind of thing. Come the weekend, it was like, yeah, sick. You know, I've got new Skeppy, new Fixate, all this cool stuff. So it was another sort of difficult balancing act of things going really well because of the label, but me personally just feeling quite down about, it, about everything because I'm not actually that, you know, that like I say, not that confident in my own music anymore. So, so that I had to kind of fight through that for a while. When did that change? Probably, I think when I decided to do my album because my label manager was like, you need to do another album. Like, oh, okay. I was like, no, no. Was like, you need to do another album. I'm like, oh God's sake. <laughs> and it was kind of like it dragged on for a while. And then it was like, Oh, actually, do you know what? I, I'm in a place now. I think I just moved. I'd moved to, moved here to Antwerp with my wife. So it was kind of like, in some ways I, I'd, I'd separated myself from, from the rest of the musical world. You know, it was, this was just—it's just about me here, family, and that was all. That and those were the influences around me. So I was a lot—I think I was a lot more settled within myself. Um, it was—you know—I'd only go out on the weekends, and you know, occasionally see some of my people be going to all these different places. So I think once I was—once I came here and settled, and I wasn't as influenced by by everything, then I kind of chilled out a bit. I think really, you know, my my wife and my kids kind of gave me that confidence in myself again to be like, you know what, just, just do you. That's when sort of, you know, uh, A Love I Can't Explain sort of sort of came about. And then literally that I think in some ways that probably opened the floodgates in terms of like, oh, okay. Because as well, I think because of that uncertainty of what I was doing, it was get, releasing it and having people critique it was a problem that I needed to get over. It was like I—I I think most musicians probably do, or producers. It's like I, I'm not making this for you, so I don't really want to know what you think about it. <laughs> do you know mm-hmm, what I mean? Mm-hmm. So you know, my my wife was like, it's "Just it'd be fine. Just get it out of there. Stop worrying." And and it, and it was. And I think it was just like I, it, that thing of sort of learning to let go is um and not be so bothered about what other people think and what they might think of it or how it compares to to this you know sonically amazing piece of music because it, it doesn't it's a different thing and me having to realize it that, that that it's a different thing and not make those comparisons so and that wasn't even that long ago was it that was just maybe like a year yeah before. it was only a
0: couple of years ago and now you've done like three more
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah the floodgates opened just, it pretty much was it and I think I just learned the art of letting go but I think also, I think just, I miss, I, di- I did miss and I do miss sort of like, you know, we were talking earlier about collaborations. And I think that's, I'm almost happier in, in those kind of situations, I think. I prefer working with people. And I'm pro- that's probably why those points in my career have always been quite, uh, are the sort of main, you know, highlights, so to speak, are, are the collaborations. Cause, uh, because I enjoy that so much. And because mm. in some ways it's a... Not as much stress in, in in that respect, you know, so I can do, I can concentrate what on on what I'm good at. And if I'm working with Skeptical, I know that the mix is going to sound sick, so I don't <laughs> have to worry about that. I haven't got that that pressure anymore.
0: And you actually appear on a good amount of, of excerpt releases. You're there, even if it's like you're, you know, collaborating on track four or something. You do actually crop up quite often in the catalogue, which is quite nice. Yeah,
1: I do. I do. It's I. I you know. I. I, like I say. Just I just love working with people. It's I get a real buzz out of it because I'm I just constantly learning, and I think because that was probably my musical heritage in terms of you know that's how I started out. Whether it was like working with my brother, and then or working with Gary, Lenny, you know Jason. I've always worked with people. And I've got I've got loads of loads of collabs going on at the moment as well. Who are you working with at the moment? i <laughs> um uh, just finished something with prequel tapes. Done some stuff with Forest Drive West. Done some stuff with um, some Joe Seven. Uh, Screams just sent me something that we're going to collab on. Matthew Johnson hit me up the other day. We've been meaning to to sort something out. Look, I'm up for that. I'm working with um, a composer um, called Maddie. She's amazing. Um, so yeah, just all sorts really. Whoever wants to work with me, and um, I'm, I'm down for it, really.
0: I want to just go back a tiny bit to talk about the sort of period um, after Autonomic, because I think also Exit was doing something quite unique, or at least only a few labels were doing it, where there's a sort of period where you're putting out records by uh, people like Fracture, On where there's this whole mixture of the the kind of duke footwork influence coming in and this kind of like jungle footwork conversation and i think actually exit have put out some of the more like interesting records in that kind of lineage really even thinking of some of the more the more recent ones that i've really liked like the itoa which is just like is yeah. it's wicked like a track like turbo sideman is totally different to all of the kind of um d&b stuff but I, I was wondering yeah. if you felt that with that particular kind of generation and that kind of exploration of, I guess, like transatlantic mm. conversation again, if you, if you felt like you'd found something that was possibly even a bit futuristic again, if that was one of the reasons it was exciting you? or Because you don't necessarily make music like that, but you've released quite a bit of music that's in that world, I
1: think. Yeah, no, I just liked, you know, it's like when, when the whole, the, the whole, the, the Duke, because I, I, you know, I didn't really, admittedly, I don't know a great deal about it. But you know, when I first heard it, I was quite, I suppose, quite naive to it in some ways, quite ignorant, and it's kind of like, well, what's what's going on here? Then it's just kind of they're taking some old sort of sort of jungle sounds and just doing quite weird things with it. But then it was, I kind of saw it in context. You know, when you see like the footwork and the dancing, and you see the the way that they marry it, it makes sense. You're like, oh right, okay. Because it was almost like there was a quite snobbish attitude I I, as, I had as well. I think I had it with dubstep as well. It was kind of like, oh, what's this? Kind of like, what, what are they doing? You know what I mean? But when you hear when you hear it in context, you're kind of like, ah, oh, right, okay. I see what's going on here now. You're just being a bloody snob. Um, so the Duke stuff, I was kind of like, the rhythms and the patterns that they were doing, it was like, whoa, what? Hold on a minute. you You, you can't do that. <laughs> that that doesn't that just doesn't make any sense do you know what I mean <laughs> um but I think what what I loved about it was that the approach that that people you know the people like Charlie and Omunit Fixate and Alex and Ito were, were taking to that um it's like it's like why I, I like like trying to get people who don't produce d to produce d because I want to hear what you think it is you know, that they were really into things that I knew nothing about as well. And like, you know, records I knew nothing about and had, how it was having an influence on, on them. But I was able to connect with what they were doing because there was these sort of, some you know, the sample choices that were, there was that familiarity that was there, you know, like throwback therapy um, or What was what was Charlie's big one? The um, The love and touch one. Yeah, loving loving touch and things like that. Just kind of Mm. reimagining those things. Is that and the the rhythms that that were being produced? It's like with with like fixate stuff as well. Especially kind of like the rhythms that he does at DMB's tempo, which is what I've always been kind of like. Again, this thing of like you know, DMB does have a lot to offer that that hasn't fully explored. You know, we know that you can go boom, cat, boom, cat. That's, we've done that. That's, but what else can you do within, you know? And these guys were were exploring those avenues and those different rhythms. And, and it wasn't, I remember when when we were first starting playing it again, it was almost like we were bringing CDJs. People were looking to us like, what the hell are you playing? (laughs) (laughs) What are you doing? And it's kind of like, it's all right. You'll get it eventually.
0: H- has it brought you into different scenes as well? Like, have you found yourself DJing in kind of unusual places or like different to different kinds of audiences over the years?
1: I have because I've consciously made that effort and decision. You know, I left my I left my DJ agency because I just felt it was too D&B orientated. And because of the music that mm. I was playing, re- well, releasing more than anything, I wanted to be able to kind of, Play it to to more audiences who weren't just there for dB and as a res- as a result, it's kind of like I think searching for mu- music and lo- lo- hunting for music again that I got lazy at is because everyone was sending me stuff. I didn't really have to worry about looking for music because I I'd always been to be getting the latest stuff from the people within my crew and my camp.
0: Well this happens to the big DJs though doesn't it they can't you know you get sent everything and then you're not really digging anymore and you, you know you have to sort of uh, yeah get get a new type yeah. of motivation for it I guess.
1: Yeah and I think and that's what I've just I've I love the, the motivation it's given me it's kind of like really checking you know the promos and being getting on to good promo lists and listening to all this stuff that's you know all these different tempos and being like you can tell the connections you can tell that people who have been influenced by d&b and you are hearing them in these other tempos and that's exciting me i'm just loving that at the moment it's just oh, it's amazing
0: i saw you uh well i mean it's a year and a half ago now but i saw you at Sustain release festival in new york or in, in upstate new york
1: that always brings a big smile to my face that that night it's pretty good, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. It was it's a, it's a it was a straight cuz you know, they took me out there and I'm kind of like didn't really know what what to expect.
0: And, it, and it's that summer camp, isn't it, we should say? It's at like a sort of kid's summer camp. So everyone sleeps in like little tiny beds in dormitories if they sleep, obviously.
1: <laughs> See, like, my only sort of connection with that is like in American movies, like Camp Crystal Lake and things. <laughs> do you, do you know yeah, yeah. It's like, and then seeing this place and like, oh, sh- sh- this place actually exist. They- these are a thing. When I did that set, did they really didn't know what to expect. There was so much smoke in the room. It was literally yeah. couldn't. I literally couldn't see a foot in front of me. So to, to me, when I was playing, <laughs> I didn't know if anyone was in that room the whole time. <laughs> there
0: were there were definitely lots of people there, can assure um, you. But yeah. that's
1: what kind of like that. I think that set really. I needed that set in terms of um just for my own sanity. Because when I, you know, when I finished, the place just you know just wow, erupted, and I was just like, oh shit, there is people here, and they really enjoyed <laughs> it, and it kind of like. I it's just it was one of those sets that definitely kind of reinvigorated me and just kind of like, right, you are making the right choices. You're, you're doing you're heading down the path that you need to be going. You know, there is there is this other world out there that's open to what it is that you're doing.
0: One thing that we haven't talked about, which is probably a relief, is the pandemic. But I'm wondering how much the pandemic would have really impacted on on exit, I mean, what? How? How would you describe your pandemic year? How have you coped?
1: We've done all right. We've, we haven't released a great deal. Um, we've put out sort of merch stuff, and you know, um, we've got had my album, which uh, came out a week or no signal. That's that did really well. Things have been sort of pushed. There were there were th- tunes that were due to be released, which hadn't been released, but up, you know, up will be released. Um, I think we're just like like a lot of people. Just adjusting, really, making use of these sort of like Bandcamp Friday mm-hmm. things that you know were going on. You know, getting the the artists to release stuff on the on the, you know on the label, the digital things. Because that's not something that we were ever really about as such. Do you know what I mean? It's like we always wanted to have vinyl releases, but now we're kind of like right. You know, we've got releases lined up, but it's becoming if anything's becoming more difficult now because vinyl lead up times are just getting ridiculous now. You're talking almost like twenty, twenty plus weeks. So having to think that far ahead is becoming difficult. So I can see that label and I can see labels are adjusting in terms of like you're seeing more digital releases now as a result because it's taking so long to to create create vinyl. So I think we're we're adjusting to it really. I'm having some some me time again, I think. Going back to the early days of exit, I think revisiting just releasing <laughs> Great. me for for a while and just sticking with the cr- the crew and just being there for them when they want you know when they when they want to release things it's like we're always here for you because everybody's having to work out what they can and can't do whether they're furloughed or whatever do you know what i mean so it's like it's having differing effects on yeah. on, on different artists you know things things are going things are going well this this project you know case came along it's like so like, yeah, see, I'd love to be involved in this. Um, and there's there's the the hope of things opening up again. I'm not that confident. Do you know what I mean? And really? Weirdly, I'm not. Also, not that bothered. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's but you've like, had
0: your fill, haven't you? You've had loads of it. You've got to think about the eighteen year olds who haven't had their share yet. <laughs> I guess.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You're right. You're you're, you're you're exactly right. It's kind of like I've you know I've been there, done that.
0: Do you think there's going to be some moment like in June when all of these labels suddenly, they've got, right, okay, we've got four releases coming out this month, guys. Here are all your like summer bangers and they all just come out within one yeah, month. Yeah, it's
1: possible. Uh, um, I, I think I had the other day, I had um, three releases coming out on the same day and I didn't even realise. <laughs> <laughs> I'm probably one of the only people who can get away with that. Um,
0: <laughs> all right, so the final question is, is to do with the post pandemic world i guess and i'm i'm curious about what you would like to see more of or less of in dance music when we are finally allowed back on the dance floor
1: i okay I tell you what i what i'm hoping for is that there's some some people who have used this time to really sort of dig deep within themselves and and find their inner voice and, you know, make music that doesn't worry about what is going to get a reaction. Do you know what I mean? That's what I'm I'm looking forward to hearing, just some good old, honest, soulful music, really. But whether people will play it on the dance floor is, is another question. I'd love for people to use this opportunity to not go back to, to to the way things, you know, to what was going on before, to not repeat, not to say mistakes, but just kind of like, I don't want to hear any fog horns, Do you know what I mean? That kind of thing. <laughs> in, the, in the drum and bass party it's just kind of like, if you've, what's next? It's like, what, what else can you do, guys? Come on.
0: Excellent. Honest music, no fog horns, please. Do you still accept totally unsolicited demos or is it all kind of people that you know at this point?
1: Um, no, I do. And actually, I've kind of built up relationships with, um, with people who get, kind, of, kind of get what I'm into, like Tim Parker. He, you know, he has his show on NTS and stuff like that. He sends me stuff and they're like, you might like this. He's like, he he introduced me to some people and to Dolan's as well. So weirdly, he's almost come become like, exits A&R. So maybe send, mis- <laughs> maybe send music to him. <laughs>
0: yeah. Don't say that or you'll have to put him on the payroll. <laughs> yeah,
1: true. Um, so yeah, maybe <laughs> send music to him. Excellent.
0: Darren, thank you so much for giving me so much for your time and giving
1: us this tour of Exit Records. No worry, thanks. Thanks for... Thanks for getting in touch.
0: You've been listening to Relevant Parties from Carhartt Work in Progress. If you want to dive into more music from the labels in this series, check out the Relevant Parties playlist on Spotify. You can find the link in the show notes. And remember, you can subscribe to Relevant Parties so that you never miss an episode. It's available wherever good podcasts are found. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating and a comment on Apple Podcasts. We'd really love to know what you think. So thanks for listening and join me next time for more stories behind the world's best record labels.